0: Everybody to another episode here at the Basin Binge as we continue our way through Noel November. It's coming to a close here pretty quickly, and I'm excited to be continuing it with the great film that is Interstellar. I've got a lot to say about Interstellar. This is one of the longest episodes I've written. And so I'm very, very excited to get into it. If you're new here to the Basin Binge, if Interstellar was the episode that wanted you to check it out, thank you so much for being here. Hopefully you enjoy it. If you're a longtime listener coming back, You've been listening all the way through November, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Let's get into it here with Two Cents, which if you are new, just so you know, Two Cents is my completely spoiler-free reaction, kind of knee-jerk reaction to the film, and then we'll get into the spoilers. So here we go with Two Cents. The first time I saw this film was actually about a year and a half ago for the podcast, so this is actually a re-review for the podcast but a year and a half ago was actually the first time that i saw it kate and kelton were there watching me as my mind was blown for the first time and that first time i instantly fell in love with the film interstellar is an astonishing film to watch we'll have to see what happens with tenet but this might be my new favorite christopher nolan movie it's incredibly ambitious and lands every bit of it of course, if the film is about interstellar travel as it's named and the larger universe, of course it's going to have to be one of the most ambitious films. And it's really incredible to come back and watch it. Doing the rating beforehand, Inception was really at the top. It had been a while since I saw it. And I knew I loved Interstellar, but I'm, every time I view it, I'm reminded by how much I love it. Right, So let's just talk about some key points here. Everybody loves the score for this film, and rightfully so. This is some of Hans Zimmer's best work, but right along with that, the production design and cinematography are also remarkable and should be talked about forever. What this film accomplishes visually is incredible. It's typical Christopher Nolan with big IMAX scope and a loud score to go along with it, but Interstellar is a lot more than just fancy sights and sounds. In the book, The Known Variations by Tom Schoen, which is pretty much a compilement of conversations between Tom and Chris, the chapter on Interstellar is titled Emotion. Just emotion. And that could not be more accurate for the film, right? There's a lot of technical things that go into this film, but this film really is full of emotion. On a review on Letterboxd for Inception, there was a comment by Ritesh Sharma, I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name, Another great individual on Letterboxd I love. But we were talking about Inception and how in Inception, we as the audience desire to see the catharsis of Cobb seeing the face of his kids. And this is what Ritesh said. Exactly. I've seen people complaining about too much exposition in Inception. I was literally never bothered by because of Nolan's powerful storytelling. Nolan makes exposition into emotional beats rather than functional plot devices. We emotionally invest ourselves in his characters and their goals. In the case of Inception, we are as desperate to see the face of Of Cobb's kids as Cobb was. This film deals with a lot of heavy scientific ideas and plot points, so there is a lot of exposition, there is a lot of characters explaining, but as Ritesh says, it's perfectly framed to further build the emotion, right? So what makes the score or the production design, the cinematography, or even this dialogue, or any other technical element so powerful, is the emotion and story that those things are telling. The difficult and powerful emotion is weaved into every fiber of the film, and it's, it, it's intense. Matthew McConaughey gives an incredible performance, along with Anne Hathaway and Jessica Chattison. So many moments throughout the film, I just cry because of the emotion. And at the end, I'm filmed with so much emotion, but consistently throughout the film. It's really... A powerful film and absolutely captivating to watch it's long but you can't look away as it moves so well with a great pace and not a moment that's wasted this just just to kind of give you a little snippet of the magic this film contains this was the first project that chris nolan did with his new cinematographer hoyt van hoytema and he is incredible here in Interstellar. it has a very documentary type feel to it and i love something that chris said about him in the the bonus features, he said, Hoitema oh, tried what we've never did just by picking up the IMAX camera and not worrying about how heavy it was. He, you know, so he just picked up these big cameras and put it on his shoulder, he's a big dude, and completely changed the way that they shot with IMAX. And it's used really well to the benefit of the film in that it feels very documentary-like, it feels very real, it feels very authentic. And so that little snippet is what All of Interstellar is, is it's it's a very real depiction of human emotion and in this incredibly complex and difficult situation. And it's very powerful throughout the film. As Ritesh said earlier, it's all made into emotional beats and it it, go along with it so well. It it really is a powerful film. If you have somehow not seen it, you definitely need to. It is is a very, very powerful film. When you watch it, make sure to set aside some time because it's it's going to consume your thoughts. But that's going to do it for me for two cents because I, got, I want to talk about the film and we got to get into spoilers. So some brief announcements here. If you're enjoying this episode, you're enjoying any episode of The Basement Binge, please leave a review on podchaser.com slash The Basement Binge, always linked in the show notes. Also, I'll reach out to you to give you a free screen pass or if you just want a free screen pass, reach out to me over social media, however it is. I don't have a screen pass for Interstellar because it's not a movie, it's anywhere. But I do have one for Ad Astra, which is very similar to Interstellar. And if you like Interstellar, I highly recommend at Astra. If you'd like to check it out for free, reach out to me for a screen pass. Happy to share it with you. Additionally, I apologize that I haven't had as much time to post things on Instagram to get your feedback for Interstellar and the next episode Dunkirk. This time of year is literally the busiest time of year for me with work. And so it's just sucked up a lot of my time. And uh, yeah, sorry, I've been busy. Hopefully, I still would love to know your thoughts on Interstellar. You can just message me or comment on anything. but I'd also especially love to get your thoughts on tenant as that episode comes up. I'd love to include a lot more of people's thoughts about tenant. Additionally, if you're big into the Spider-Man films, go check out Matt Goes to the Movies. Coming out over the next few weeks in anticipation of Spider-Man No Way Home, he's going to be reviewing every single one of the live-action Spider-Man movies. So that's going to be lots of fun. Hopefully, I'm going to be able to join him for a few episodes, but that's over on Matt Goes to the Movies, of course, linked in the show notes. Let's move on to the next segment here. Pick your poison. Pick your poison is the rating scale here at the basement binge. So it's all out of four options, all based on the binge ability of the film or how I would choose to interact with it after this watch. So bottom of the list is never watch it again. That's very straightforward. Above that is to stream it. It's on a service I'm already paying for and I'm looking for something to watch. When I'm scrolling and browsing, I'd be willing to click on it. Above that is to rent it in the right circumstances. I'd be willing to pay a few dollars, rent it digitally or through Redbox or whatever. And at the top of the list, you see it coming. It's a buy pay for it, watch it as many times as you have, whether that's Blu-ray or digital or whatever. And without a doubt, this film is a buy. I already do own it. I've owned it for a while. I've used it many, many times. I I, I love this film, and I'm going to continue to watch it throughout the rest of my life. On top of that, way back when we reviewed this, earlier on The Basement Binge, when there was the three of us recording, myself, Kate, and Kelton, we joked that not only was this a buy for ourselves, but it's one of those films that you can confidently buy for others as a gift even if you don't know their feelings about it because it's just a, such a powerful film that is really easy to get lost in and love and that's one of the reasons that i do want to own this film is because i love to share it with people i remember showing it to my family for the first time and how blown away they were i love showing people the power of this film and, and enjoying it with them it's great so obviously it's a buy i mean but it's nolan november they're all going to be that way Let's move on to the next segment here, Live Up. This is where I talk about my expectations for the film and if the film was able to live up to those expectations. This is actually only the third time that I've seen Interstellar. The first was for the podcast, like I mentioned. The other time was a rescreening that was being done during the pandemic for the local theater where I lived. My wife and I, with some of her friends, we were able to go see it in IMAX. It was glorious. Um, but now, this third time, What was I expecting? What is it like to come back to it? And I was so excited for Inception and Dunkirk, which sandwiched Interstellar in the schedule. So I wasn't giving too much thought to Interstellar what I thought about it because I just knew I loved it and I was confident that I was going to love it. Additionally, I'd already kind of done an episode on it. I felt like my ideas had been expressed where with Inception and and Dunkirk, those ideas were forming and, and going to be expressed. So I was really giving those a lot of thought and honestly kind of, I I, I knew I was watching interstellar. Like I didn't forget about it that way, but I forgot about it in like, I don't know, setting any type of expectation for it. I mean, it's just interstellar. I just knew I loved it. Like it was that simple. That was the expectation is, oh, it's interstellar, but the film started and immediately I thought, oh yeah, I love this film and I can't wait to love it some more. And I got really, really excited and it just, immediately reminded me how much I love it. So I made an immediate expectation in that moment to find more in each thing, each component of the film that I already loved about it. And there was something that Christopher Nolan said in one of the bonus features, he was talking about the the great lengths they went to with the film, knowing that would have to be uh, a film that does a lot through the image. And he said, you have to be affected by the image, not just by the characters telling you something about it, but just by what you see would give you an impact. I've already said multiple times, this is a very, very emotional film. And those images, I remember being blown away by the first time and by the production design and the score and the ambition of all it. But this time I was touched by the emotion and that was through the whole film, including those images like Christopher Nolan said. And that's what I was hoping to do is to draw more out of each one of those things, including the images, that it's not just a cool image or a really impressive or amazing image, it's also a powerful one. It's an emotional one. And that is absolutely true. The story and the performances are the heart of that emotion, but there is so much technically happening that supports that. These images are really powerful from a sandstorm to a faraway planet to a spaceship or a black hole or whatever it is. They don't just look beautiful. They tell the story. They express the fear of earth dying and the need to explore elsewhere, but the risk and sacrifice associated with that, the fear, the wonder and awe at exploring space. Those things are portrayed as we see earth spin further and further away from the Endurance, or we see Gargantua in the background, or or whatever it is. These images evoke emotion, and the IMAX format is used so well here. Um, The majority of the film was shot in IMAX, especially with Hoytema's new, you know, handheld method. With it, he just got it right in there. But the smaller thirty-five millimeter frame that is used when IMAX can't be feels really cramped. This is one thing that I love about the film is in the kind of essential switching back and forth between the aspect ratios that they have to do, it actually serves the story as well. For example, at the beginning of the film, when they're running from the first dust storm that we see, it's a big IMAX frame and then they go into the dark house and it cuts down to a 35 millimeter and we have the letterbox at the top and the bottom or we go inside the ship, or we go inside one of their bases on one of the planets, and it feels very, very cramped and contained. And so when you go in space, or when you go in these other moments, it allows them to be really freeing and expansive. But at the other end, they also feel a little bit too big, too expansive, too much of a threat, too much that is unseen beyond the large image already seen. It serves both the excitement and awe and wonder of space exploration, and the, but also the fear. And the realization of this gigantic dust storm that's coming or a gigantic black hole that you're about to go through or that you are going through or that is behind you that's sucking you in or a giant wave or whatever it is, it, it captures both sides of that, the fear and the wonder and both, and it's incredibly well used. The score as well, it, it adds such rich emotion to the film. I'm going to talk about this a lot, but this is one particular thing in my, in my expectation of finding little details and new richness in the things I already love. I love the score. I listen to it all the time, but I found something in the way that the score works emotionally within the film. For example, the, the theme, I don't know, i yeah, one of the strong motifs or, or themes throughout the music in Interstellar is this chord progressions right here. And so it's one of my favorites. It's one I listen to a lot, so I'm really comfortable with it. I know it well. And when hearing it, it builds up and then resolves down. When in the film, as they drive to the coordinates, it's very questioning. It doesn't conclude like it does later. It just keeps stepping up and building up. The step down is one of my favorite parts about the score, but it's completely missing this time. And I, I immediately recognize that because I was waiting for that part of it that feels so comforting to me. And so it builds a lot of uncertainty and anticipation. You're, you're unsure what's going to happen with this place that they're going to. And it works so well with the score. You you don't want a score for the film to be a coat of paint that goes on afterwards, but to be in the foundation of the whole thing. And that really, really works here. Another example of this is when Cooper comes back from Miller's Planet and he sees the messages after 23 years. The score finally... Concludes or resolves as I'm going to call it where it steps down But only after a few minutes of it building up and it's a very small step down that happens when his son tells him about school As a teen when he says that he's still getting C's from one of his teachers at the at the shared emotion or the shared experience the mutual experience is when there's a little bit of Conclusion a little bit of closure or resolving Um, I Finished second in school This girl like still giving me C's so Pull me down, but a you know, second it's, like it's not bad. Grandpa attended sir. But then it goes back to building without resolving. Uh, oh, I met another girl, Dad. I, uh... uh... Until he starts to mention letting him go, we get no resolves, and then it just cuts off clean. Uh, Wherever you are, we, Dad, I hope that you're at peace. And... Bye. So let me give you an example of what I mean between resolving and not. So this is what it sounds like when it's just building, you know, we get the, the notes up, but not the notes down. And this is what it's like when it is resolving that we get the notes up and the notes down. another example of this is in the tesseract the score goes back to building without resolving the first resolve comes when she opens the notebook to see stay don't make a mistake and it's a bit larger, but still really quick and small. And then it kind of seldomly comes back more and more frequently as Merv and Coop start to understand things a little bit more. For example, when Coop says to Tars, they didn't choose me, they chose her. And he replies, for what, Cooper? And he says, to save the world. And then the score just starts resolving and building on top of each other continually, because that's the moment of closure, that's the moment of understanding, the moment of resolve. They didn't choose me, they chose her. For what, Cooper? to save the world. All of this is one little girl's bedroom. Every moment, it's infinitely complex. They have access to infinite time and space, but they're not bound by anything. They can't find a specific place in time. They can't communicate. That's why I'm here. I'm gonna find a way to tell Murph, just like I found this moment. How, Cooper? Love, Tars, love. It's just like Bran said, my connection with Murph, it is quantifiable. It's the key. What are we here to do? Find out. tell her. The watch. Very, very powerful. I also just briefly want to talk about some new understandings I get into these characters and these stories the second time around or third time around as you're able to view it a lot more and, and how that affects the experience of watching the film especially with Matt Damon's character. He is so charismatic and hopeful the way he talks about the planet. This is, may sound really weird, but when he's talking about the planet and he looks up, and he's flipping through papers and he kind of licks his fingers so he can turn the pages. There's something about that that makes me feel comfortable and also really excited for what he's about to express to them. And I still feel that even knowing what this character does, but feeling that comfort and feeling that excitement for them to be successful on this planet makes me really upset. It makes me uncomfortable and disgusted with him. I feel empathy and love for him when we first meet him and the excitement for this planet to have success. But I also feel a lot of disgust towards him and the selfishness of of him. There's a great line when he is portraying Cooper and then he's walking away. He says, don't judge me, Cooper. You were never tested like I was. Few men have been. And then this big organ kicks in and it's a great cut. Don't judge me, Cooper. You were never tested like I was. Few men have been. It's a great section of the film. But in that moment, I feel so much anger. But this time around, I also feel a lot of sorrow for him. That would be a test we c- couldn't understand to be alone for so long and to literally put yourself into your sleepy grave. But he does it dishonestly. To get 11 other people to go and do the same thing, but you're dishonest because you're thinking about yourself. He truly is a coward. And so I feel a lot of empathy this time around that I, I didn't before. But it's, it's such a twist on your emotions in that moment, uh, knowing what happens. It's interesting as he, as he you know, tries to get back to the endurance. And I always think, how is your weird you know, belief in this survival instinct going to save anybody, right? He's talking to, to Dr. Brown. He's saying, this isn't about my life. This is for all mankind. His survival instinct won over everything else in his mind. And so in this delirium, he's convincing himself that that is the key somehow. The the justification of his selfish actions is that that's the key. And he's totally nuts. It's such an interesting character to be written in, to feel the emotion of betrayal and the the reality of that, that what can happen will happen. What can happen is that someone would be dishonest and that they, they would hurt all mankind for their selfish interest. And that does happen. Love that character. I also noticed the incredible pace of the film this time around. It didn't feel like three hours. At one point, I paused it, you know, and the little progress bar showed up, and it was way further into the film than I thought. Yes, it is long, and the length of it is earned in the large story it tells and how thoroughly it tells that story without being too much. But it also moves really quickly through it. I keep saying this, but it's just a very, very powerful film that has so much richness in each moment. The emotion is all the way through it. From Coop being with his kids, to having to leave, to wanting to get back to them, to making sacrifices for them, while also making essential sacrifices for all mankind, and and maybe even a little bit for himself. I don't know. It's emotional all the way through, but it's absolutely rewarding to watch. Yes, there is sorrow, but it's mostly full of hope. And the ending is full of a great resolve. In in many definitions, I I quickly just Googled the definition of resolve. And there was a few of them that I thought fit the conclusion of this film really well. So one of the definitions is to settle or find a solution to a problem, a dispute, or a contentious matter. Coop being able to solve the problem and find a solution to being able to see his daughter again. And also to be able to save the world from the destruction that's happening on Earth. It is a resolve to both of those problems at hand. Or the second definition of something seen at a distance turned into a different form when we see more clearly. An understanding or a resolve in our understanding of family. Our love and connection. And what does connection do for us and the, and the power that it has? That love just isn't for social utility, but it's something that's powerful. That's a resolve. Or the third definition uh, That's kind of two combined, a firm determination to do something or to decide firmly on a course of action. Two different definitions that I combine to one. The human race has to survive. That's the determination that they have. They go to great lengths to do that. And they do. A lot of people sacrifice a lot to make that happen because of the resolve to do that. Coop in his resolve to see his daughter again, to keep that promise, but to also do the right thing to the world. And it somehow, miraculously, you do both. The film is full of great resolve. And that is a word that has been on my mind, resolve, as I watched the film. And how I noticed the score doesn't resolve in that, that I mentioned earlier, and how that really affected me, and how the film doesn't resolve for a lot, until it does, and how powerful that is. Works so well. But that's all I have to talk about and live up. Of course, we're gonna talk about all these things a little bit more, so let's just keep going through the episode, let's get into binge points here. What are bench points? These are Easter eggs or details, trivia, behind the scenes, things, whatever it is, just things about the film and the creation of the film that I think are really incredible that I want to mention. I want to go through a few things within the film that I just want to draw attention to. The first one is the dust on the ground that they get the coordinates from being binary and not Morris. It's interesting to have seen the film and know how that happens and knowing that it's Coop giving binary to himself, and to think about the paradox, if you will, of who it is that does that. Is it Coop in the future that understands that the past him is only going to understand binary, so he chooses binary? Or is it that the past him saw that it was binary, so now that he's in the future, you know he has to do binary, and then you just get in this little loop that doesn't really work, and the cycle that never ends. But what I think, whoever past or present or future version of Coop that inspires it, or, or raw inspiration, whatever it is, it really works for the character of Coop to discover it for himself. That it's not, and maybe this is the pride in him, but I also just think it's the, you know, I don't know, maybe discretion we have in quickly believing things. He, ha- he discovers it for himself that it's binary, not just Smurf. And so it allows him to, to validate it to himself and it works really well. The other moment that I just love is the use of the score when they approach the endurance for the first time at a docking, using our knowledge of past scenes like this against us where we know that this is a not an easy thing to do, that builds the tensity, while also showing us that we can have a tense scene that maybe works out and preparing us for what happens later. On top of just showing the complexity of this so that later we understand that Dr. Man can't just race up there and do it real quickly. We see the difficulty of this and such a good use of that scene the first time to prepare us for everything that happens earlier. Um, Also to twist us a little bit, it's so well done. The other last thing is just a little detail that I really loved when Coop is in the ranger and he's going back through the black hole. And he's about to leave, and Dr. Brand is, you know, kind of freaking out that she's realizing he's leaving. He calls her Amelia for the first time right before he leaves. All the other times in the film, he calls her Dr. Brand or Brand or something like that, but he calls her Amelia, her first name. And to me, it just shows that he's understanding the connection to humanity a little bit more. There's a little bit more of a connection between the two of them. And that's just something that I loved. Now, everything else we're going to talk about in Binge Points can be filed under what I like to call Christopher Nolan's unending devotion to in-camera wizardry. And all the lengths that he and his team go to to create these things in camera, it's phenomenal. It's really, really powerful. For example, that drone at the beginning of the film, that old drone, is actually just like a giant model airplane that they built to fly around and found a really good pilot. But to make it work, he would have to be on the ground and get it to take off and then get it in the air and then he would have to get in a helicopter so that he could see it and fly it around and so that they could then film it and then to land it, he would then have to get out of the helicopter and get on the ground so he could land. It's like, so it's a great ordeal. It's not just something that you quickly press a button and it goes up. There, there was an ordeal to get it in the air, but they went through those links anyway. And that as a simple thing, but it is true throughout the, everything else. For example, the dust, they used uh, synthetic dust, fake dust, with huge fans, gigantic fans all over this town, this place in Calgary, Canada. On one shot, there was like eight or so fans that I saw that they're just dumping this dust into to get it up in the air and it's, it's absolutely incredible. And it works so well because dust in the air affects light and how that light is now on your characters and in your scene and the way it's done is, is incredible. You, you can't fake that stuff. So let's just get into talking about all the things that they built and how they did it. For example, the house. They didn't want Earth to be so unappealing that leaving Earth is no longer an emotional struggle, right? If Earth is that unappealing, you're ready to get out of there. You have to make Earth a place you want to be at. They realized that this farm and this house is such an important part in the film that the chances of finding a building that fits that role perfectly was pretty slim. So what they ended up doing was finding a piece of land that really worked and then building a house on top of that. They pretty much just built an actual house situated and oriented perfectly to get the views within the setting and rising of the sun and to to have lighting where they need to allow for them to film. And when talking about this house and then the lengths they went to building it, the cinematographer, Huitema, he was talking about Chris and he says, when building it, Chris would walk around through it without a viewfinder to first make sure it felt like a house. And that works so well in the way that it makes that house feel like a place that you belong and that you want to be in and feels comfortable. So that leaving it is harder. So then the other side of this, of course, is the corn. That's the other part of this farm. And I love something that uh, Christopher Nolan's brother, Jonathan, the other writer on the script said about it. He's like, well, of course there's no corn here. This corn is only here because of the script. They went, it's in Canada, somewhere near Calgary. And they talked to farmers that were farming in that real land and they kept telling them that they were gonna fail. But they wanted it to feel like corn is growing in a place where it shouldn't and add a little bit to the craziness of the situation that the earth is in right now. And so there's this real farmer who they get to talk in the bonus features and he says, if you grew corn here, you'd be living on the edge. As I said to them, this is the edge of common sense. But they ended up growing uh, in two different lots, 350 acres of corn. And then another lot that had 500 acres of corn, they used it for the film, they were able to drive through it, they were able to burn it, whatever they needed to film it. But then they were also able to then sell the corn uh, and ended up making money back on the corn on their investment. So in the middle of film production, they also got into the corn business. And when when filming that chase scene with the truck driving through the corn, what they did is they had a stunt double in the car, and then someone up in a helicopter who was on an open radio directing the stunt driver through the corn because they obviously can't see these corn stalks are like eight or ten feet tall. You're not seeing through them; they're thick, and so they guided them through a helicopter. Intense, but once we leave Earth, we're in space, and this film's depiction of space is famous in the realness of it. And they actually had, as many people know, an astrophysicist. His name's Kip Thorne. He's an expert on gravitational waves and the effects of space, time, because of gravity, wormholes, that types of things. He was actually an executive producer on the film and a large consultant with Jonathan and Chris as they were writing it. And so he really helped in creating space to look the way it was. Astrophysicists and these people, they have all the calculations for a black hole and what it would look like but only Hollywood has a computer and graphics capacity to visualize that equation. And so it was kind of the marriage of the two things to get the black hole and the image generated by that. Kip was blown away when he saw it. And he talks about how it's one thing to understand it mathematically, but then to see it visually. And because of that, he was then able to write two different papers technically based on the render and what they were able to learn. One was devoted to the, Science community and what they learned. And the other one was devoted to kind of the graphics community and what they learned about the effects of gravity and how to use that. And it it was science feeding the film and then the film coming back to then feed science and how the two work together um, because of Kip's insight into the film. So they they do a lot more than just the black hole. There's a lot of other things that we get and When filming it, they built these sets that will get into these ships, but there's windows and there's things in the background. Space is in the background and and characters are viewing it. And they didn't film on a green screen. What they did is they had this huge wall. Uh, It was like 100 feet wide or something like that. And then they got a projector similar to rear projection, but they called front projection where the image of space that these characters would be looking at is projected on the wall at an angle that adjusts to how the camera is going to be viewing it to match it. And then they had something they called a synchronized lighting gap where another projector was faced towards the actors so that that same light could be shining on the actors and interacting with their face and their helmet and that type of thing. And that's what how they were able to get that look and it it works so well adding to the realness and the documentary type look of it that we, we had that I mentioned earlier. There was a lot of work that went into the production of this film and producing the look of space uh, that, that sells it really well. For example, even as they had these images on the walls behind them, they weren't just stagnant. For example, Earth and the light in the windows still spinning behind them to show that the endurance is spinning. Right, The projected image was calculated to be accurate to that and added to the actor's performance. And Hathaway talked about how when they saw that, they actually got motion sickness for the first time. It gives them something to look at and they're interacted with. No need for a green screen or fixing it in, in post. For example, when Cooper at the end of the film leaves the station and the doors open so he can fly out in a ranger, the stars are rotating to show that the space station is rotating. And those are just details that add to the reality and the feeling that they're actually in space. You know, and then there's just the things like the harsh lighting in space and the the real depiction of that similar to Ad Astra, like I talked about uh, in a past episode, their voices only communicating over the radio and when they're in space and they're in their suits because that's how it will work. The soundless explosion of the endurance with Dr. Mann because sound doesn't travel in the vacuum of space. Just all these things that depict space and space travel as it would be. And how it's more than just creating science for film or whatever, but also how they match everything in the story. This ships that we get isn't brand new. It's not super shiny or sleek or anything like that. This is built out of the old parts that you've had to put together and fix up. Sure, you've got taxes that are no longer going to the military, like Coop talks about that we turn out are going to NASA. But you still don't have a chance to build everything brand new. You've got limited resources and limited time. So you're spending resources on what you already have and putting those back together it matches so well so how did they do tars in case christopher nolan called them articulated machines more than he called them robots and it was i found this funny as he was describing them he's like they should be a functional piece of equipment you know like a light stand or a tripod or a dolly it should just be a thing and and the way he talked about that to me was just funny how to him the immediate things he could reference were all camera equipment But more than just, you know, a funny quip or whatever, funny insight into his personality, it's true that these are are functional pieces of equipment. And they built these large robots that could articulate into different shapes. So, as different shapes were needed, they built a different robot kind of for each scenario. There were some things where CGI had to be added that you couldn't just do for real. But by and large, TARS and Case were just under 200 pounds and had compressed air to move the arms and legs along with the puppeteer behind them. And so there was two puppeteers. There was Bill Irwin, who also was the voice for Tarzan Case. And then there's Mark Fischera, who was another Sun Devil who helped with the puppeteering. And so they just would walk them around where it was con- a harness was connected to kind of their chest to f- keep the thing from falling over. And then another harness to their legs that they could kind of adjust and, and walk with like we see. It was a lot of work, a lot of puppeteering. They described it, how they were able to take an inanimate object and give a personality, which is incredible, but it's so true. For example, on Miller's Planet, they had a big four-wheeler thing where they had two of them, one with uh, the big rotating tars, it's kind of an X shape on the side of it, so that as they would drive, they had to fit this, this ATV with really thin tires so it could drive through the water, and then they just had this thing rotating on the side of it so they could film, and then of course, paint it out with VFX, But then they also had another one that was the big open one holding Anne Hathaway's sun double that had this big feet thing at the bottom that would push up the water as if they weren't running. And so then they drove that through the water and of course painted out the the ATV with VFX and then adjusted it so the robot was actually moving instead of just stagnant. But it works so well. Beyond just the cool design or look of these characters, they also made them characters. They gave them personality. And Bill Irwin, who was a puppeteer and also the voice of them, Being a loving person, this is something that they said the actors were saying, and a lover of people, it was difficult for him because he's behind this big robot in the corner behind TARS, and it allowed him to add to the character of TARS of not being totally included. And it was interesting how Matthew McConaughey immediately latched onto TARS, like he would be his one friend on the ship, the one person that he liked, and so unscripted kind of ad-libbed, if you will, he started to call him Slick. And that was something that, that Matthew McConaughey added that works so well throughout the film. But I also love how they were able to differentiate between Case and Tars. Bill, who voices them, he says Case is a softer, a little less experienced. Tars is ex-Marine personality with ex-Marine sense of humor. And then Anne Hathaway says Bill made each character specific. You knew when it was Tars versus when it was Case. And it, those characters worked so well through the film, both in the, the physical production of it, and the look of it, but also in the character that they create with them. Let's talk about the spacesuits. They build these things practically, and to be practical, there's a use for everything on the suit. Wearing the suit was really difficult for the actors, but actually allowed them to add to the the performance of being uncomfortable in space. They're about thirty five pounds or so, and they had to have these undershirts. We see them for a brief moment on Anne Hathaway's character. They're blue. They had a bunch of tubes through them they would actually allow you to feed ice water through the tubes that would go along your body that would actually cool you down which is actually pretty similar to something that real astronauts wear but then those tubes in the back that connect to their helmet that is supposed to be where their oxygen comes from those were actually used for real not necessarily to give oxygen from an oxygen supply but to give them air to breathe so this fan picks up air and it goes through the tubes and through the helmet into the front right at the top of the visor and the air blows in so that they can breathe and have fresh air. And these helmets also had microphones in it so that the actors could communicate with each other. Christopher Nolan had a radio that he could communicate with the actors so they could perform, but it also allowed them to record their audio as they were. So even in these harsh environments, you know, in the wind or whatever it is, they could just talk over the radio, which is exactly how it would be for astronauts. On top of that, it allowed them to shoot IMAX for a lot of the dialogue, which normally you can because the IMAX camera is really loud. So then you'd have to ADR it, which just doesn't look good. But when you have a microphone that's concealed within this spacesuit, blocking out the noise from the IMAX camera, yeah, you can record dialogue and it, it works really well in the film. The endurance, let's talk about that and how Nathan Crowley really is a genius in his design of this. He's a production designer who's worked with Christopher Nolan on almost all of his projects except for Inception. He wanted it to look like the endurance was a bunch of smaller parts that had to be launched up into space and then individually put together in zero gravity and so it's 12 pods and that's how it's designed they ended up building three of them as sets they built this giant rocker with the three pods on it that they built so that you could shoot in a pod that you needed and you could have it flat but then you could raise the pod on the outside of it properly to get the perspectives of the other being within a rotated circle that is the endurance, right? So it was about 160 feet long and they could raise each end about 45 degrees so that when shooting, you could see in the background and get the proper perspective of things curving up. Then they had vertical versions of the same three pods, they were about split in half so they could shoot either direction uh, for zero gravity. And so they had the identical ones built vertically. Then they also had the Ranger, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, Uh, actually here in just a second, but they built an actual, almost like full size Ranger that they could film within horizontally, but then they could also, it was on a rig that would tilt up 90 degrees so they could film in it vertically for zero gravity. Incredible speaking of the ranger and the lander when researching them they went and worked with at a NASA museum um, and worked a lot with the explorer and what that looked like they also went to spacex and looked at elon's rockets to get a real design for these things and then they ended up building full-size ships for the ranger the lander was a little bit smaller not quite full size and actually shipped them to iceland we're going to talk about iceland lander how they filmed on location in Iceland, they, but they used them to film there with a crane, you know, lowering them and whatnot, having actors interact with them, climb out of them, that type of thing. But then they shipped them back to LA and put the ranger specifically, this full set ranger that they built, it was about 50 feet long on this big gimbal to then film it and, and, you know, adjust it or whatever and have it ride around. They had this little controller uh, that had kind of like three points of tilt uh, that you could control. And as you tilted the the handle, it would tilt the the ranger and christopher nolan was always the one driving it he he wanted to drive it but they also were then able to strap imax cameras to it for the shots of it being like a gopro they reference it looking like a gopro but with an imax camera and then have that same lighting they would actually see in space to genuinely film and It works so well. Those shots are some of my favorite in the film of those locked off shots on the outside of the Ranger. They work so well. And so they had to combine this with the Endurance. They built a miniature that was about 115th scale and that was filmed separately with the same lighting. And then they had a fifth scale version of the Endurance that they blow up. And so all these shots are kind of combined and and through visual effects and composition able to put them together so that we can get those locked off GoPro camera shots on this 50 foot Ranger with a 115th scale endurance in the background and have it look like it they're genuinely approaching uh, the endurance. It's incredible. For filming the zero gravity, like I mentioned, they had vertical versions of the set so they could do all the wire work, but they actually had an actual astronaut. Her name is Marsha Ivins. She was a technical consultant to make the zero gravity look real and give them a lot of insight and show them videos of when she was actually in space of how they moved around. And so they're constantly floating on these wires but you have to keep your arms and legs up, kind of using your abs to give it buoyancy and zero gravity. When you're in zero gravity, your legs don't flop over, your arms don't flop over. And you also don't have to kick them up like it's a, a loose floating and buoyancy. And so they, they had a lot of uh, control they had to have. In some situations when they weren't able to get wires in there, they would have what I like to call the tuning fork, where it's just the two things connected to their hips. And then you're kind of able to wheel them around on it and lift them up as needed. It was usually Chris as well on the under end of it, moving them around as needed to get the zero gravity look. And even as I know this, in a film, they really capture zero gravity so well. It, it really, really is impressive. Same thing with Ad Astra in the past review I did for that. The work to get that done is incredible and really sells it. Now, I had mentioned Iceland and how they filmed that. So that was used actually for Miller's Planet and Man's Planet. Miller's Planet was this place That was just water, just flat water that was about knee deep that they could walk in. Just miles and miles of water. And so everything had to be mobile and brought out to this middle of this water with big ATVs and like 15 passenger vans that were lifted up with huge tires to be really mobile. And then they'd go out there and they'd they'd film in the water. And Anne Hathaway, her suit uh, was supposed to be watertight, but there was a zipper that didn't get closed all the way. So when she falls over, as the script has, her suit filled with freezing cold water. And that was on her first day, and so it was a little bit hard for her. But they genuinely went out there and, and filmed it and made it seem like you were on a, a different planet. And then they went to a glacier for Dr. Man's planet. It's the same glacier they use in Batman Begins. And then, of course, what they had to do was take a pod for Doctor's Man and, and kind of dig into the glacier and build it there and make it look like it's been there for 20 years being battered by ice and you know, baked into the environment. But a glacier moves, and when you interact with it, it melts. And so every single day, they'd have to rebury it in ice to make it look like it was, it was still there. They were literally filming on a glacier as it moved. And so randomly, they'd have, they had a bunch of glacier guides. I think they had like 12 of them uh, there to help them. And unexpectedly, they have like 100-mile-per-hour wind gusts. And so they'd have to get off the glacier, and Chris Nolan wasn't happy with that. So they'd go down in the parking lot on gravel and film there as needed. But it really works in selling these two planets as completely surreal new places uh, and, and looks incredible. Now, the Tesseract, the end of the film, the final act, this was really difficult for them to figure out is one of the first things they started working on, but one of the last things they actually built because there was a lot of model making and ideas trying to figure out how do we portray a Tesseract? How do we portray time as a fifth dimension in this three-dimensional space that would be built for him to be able to interact with it? They ended finally getting to the result that they did and so they built this room that's suspended up in the air and with all the furniture and all the things in it, they they stretched out. They physically had things that they then put fabric on to give it this stretched out look, you know, with the right colors and everything. And then they would have Matthew McConaughey up in there in his zero G wires moving around, interacting with it to film it. And it's really interesting when talking about it, they talked about all this work that went into it, but there was a ton of work that, that went into having scientific mathematical calculations of what it would look like. And Chris said, you may not understand it, but you understand that there is a logic and a math to it. And, and that is so true. I, I mean, there is so much both within the film and also as they were trying to explain the Test Tesseract and the most features that I just didn't understand. It, it's complicated. But I understand that there is a logic to it. There is a math to it. There is a consistency to it. And that's all I have to understand. But more importantly than that, this cool design that they came up with that may have a lot of science and math to that I don't understand. I don't have to understand because the emotion is what carries me through it. As Chris says, the emotional clarity in balance with the abstract geometry. As Emma, his wife and the producer on the film said, we're talking about weighty and abstract scientific theories, but you're carried through it by the love of a father for his daughter. And that's what works so well. That's what allows a test rack to work in the film is that Sure, it is fifth dimensions presented in three-dimensional space or whatever that even means. I mean, I can repeat that to you, but I don't really understand what that means. But I understand that he's there in this thing that allows him to interact with time in this one location with his daughter and is able to communicate with her and find a way to connect with her out of his love for her. And that's what's powerful. That's what needs to come across, not the science of this. This isn't a documentary about Tesseracts. This is a film about a love between a father and his daughter. So I want to go back to what Ritesh said on a comment in his Letterboxd review earlier. No one makes exposition into emotional beats rather than functional plot devices. We emotionally invest ourselves in his characters and their goals. In the case of Inception, we are as desperate to see the faces of Cobb's kids as Cobb was. There is a lot that I don't understand about the Tesseract and that I still don't. In the bonus features as Kip and Chris were explaining the Tesseract or explaining the black hole or the wormhole. I was trying my best to keep up, but my brain just couldn't. They're speaking with such complexity and with such a high understanding of it that you just, you, they really lose you. And I don't think I ever will understand them, but I don't have to. I, don't, I, I understand enough through the film to get the emotion of it all. And it works so well, such a fine balance that they have. So the last thing I want to talk about here in Binge Points is the music because it is very, very powerful. This is often regarded as some of Hans Zimmer's best work. And it isn't just because it sounds good as a soundtrack to listen to. In fact, the album, when you listen to it, is a little bit disjointed in its arrangement and the order of the songs. But yes, the film score is incredible to listen to. I listened to it the whole time I was writing it and I listened to it all the time. But more than sounding good, it's moving. The sounds are powerful to listen to because they remind us of the emotion. You've seen the film. You've seen the journey that happens, and the score is now the colors of memory, like the resolving steps that I mentioned earlier. So, how did they get all this music? So, Chris came to Hans about two years before they started shooting and asked him to give him one day of ideas he could come up with without knowing anything about the movie. So, Chris mailed him a one page piece of paper that was typewritten out, it had a few lines of dialogue and a brief summary of some of the ideas in the film, a lot of it having to do with the relationship and friendship between Chris and Han and their shared experience uh, that they've had as parents. And that was mainly what I was talking about. Hans reveals that the ideas expressed were the relationship between a parent and a child. Chris did this because he didn't want Hans to be distracted by genre or scale or scope at all. So Hans spent one day writing about the relationship between a father and a son. It turns out that it's actually a relationship between a father and daughter, but Hans was writing about his own son. And what it was like to be a father and to have a son. And it's powerful that as I was writing this, the music was playing and it made me emotional. My eyes got a little watery because that's, that's really powerful. And so then Chris came over and they listened to it. And he loved it. And it really sent them in the direction of the film. And so now they have this direction. How do they actually go on to creating it? And Chris wanted organs to be a part of it. He said, organs are very much a part of humans trying to portray the metaphysical with religion. What is beyond us? And while the film isn't religious, it is a depiction of those ideas of, of higher thinking. So, of course, he wanted an organ. So they found this fantastic organ player, Roger Sayer, and a wonderful chapel at Temple Church in central London with this great organ. It's gigantic. And so they went to this place, and with Al Gibson, the music editor, they set up a bunch of microphones in the chapel and got to work. I loved what some of the things were said in this particular bonus feature. It's about 15 minutes long, but I watched it twice because I love it so much. And one of the things that were said, I I don't remember who said it, but he said, Hans has this idea that a human performer will give you this extra sense of magic. And we got plenty of magic in Roger, the organ player they got. And Hans talking about him said, Roger's this amazing human being that happened to us, a humble man who's an extraordinary player. And you see that, and he really is. When he was talking about it, Roger, he said, talking about Hans, that as they were working, he realized the capabilities of the organ and we got more adventurous and created as we were going. And so there was a lot of exploring and discovering to find the sounds of it all. And they really let Roger work his magic. And I really respect Hans putting aside his pride or whatever it is to just let Roger do what he needed to do and it pays off so well. Like I said, I watched this bonus feature twice because I just love the way that they talk about Roger. But more than just Roger, more than just this individual, how they talk about to just crafting this music entirely. And the way that Chris and Hans talk about finding the organ and the, and the power behind it. You know, for example, pulling out all the stops, the phrase, that's an, an expression, of course, but it comes from organs. So organs, if you don't know, is all through air being pushed through pipes. And so there's different stops that are released or pressed down, uh, causing air to go different places or not based on what knobs and levers and, and keys you play. And so pulling out all the stops mean you literally pull out all the stops and play every possible pipe. And there's just a gigantic amount of air coming through it. And Christopher Nolan is talking about how he understands that phrase. And then it shows uh, this really unedited, not seen, but Clip of Chris standing there uh, as Roger plays a super low note with all the stops out, and Chris is just standing there with his mouth open in awe. As you just feel the power of an organ. I'm I'm lucky enough that I, grown up religious, and, and an organ has been a consistent part of my life every at least once a week for years. So I'm very familiar with what it's like to hear and feel the air of an organ coming at you. Nothing this large but it 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 really is powerful i loved how hans talked about it he was saying that there's so much air being pushed into the room that you feel it vibrating and bulging and you feel that this thing is going to blow but it's a very human because you can only do it with air so much and so you feel the breath of each note in and out of humanity of what we're listening to. And so they just went to great deals to capture all of these things, whether it was the organ or anything else. The real players, Hans said, we didn't want these sounds simulated because the sounds were a reminder of all you could lose back on earth. So they're made real. But also he caused them to be made imperfectly. He said, the further you go from earth, it isn't quite perfect just like memory fading a little bit, right? And so they recorded these things to match memories, the the corrode of memory. So the choir singers turned around so their backs were to the microphones to get this unique sound. The musicians playing slightly out of harmony or slightly out of tune to give the corrosion to memory. And it's a very powerful score just full of little secrets like this that I can't wait to discover more. And more of the so and not so. Yes, the production of it is really, really exciting. And I love to discover that. But also how the film score works within the experience we have with the characters and with the story. I like to talk about the, the building and little resolve that the score has and how I love that. It adds such richness to that song that I'll always get to listen to that in those scenes. Very, very powerful. I love, love how this film was created. It's wonderful. But we're just about done here. This has been a long episode. Let's get into our second to last segment, least and Likes. My least favorite scene, my favorite scene. You guessed it, don't have the least favorite one. I do have two things that I want to mention as an honorable mention that I thought were just funny. On Miller's planet, when they crash on the wave and they're sliding down the wave and Cooper's gripping the seat, he screams and his, I know it's meant to be serious, but his face in the helmet just looks so funny. Go back and watch that scene. As they're falling down the waves, Cooper's face as he's yelling, gripping the chair is, I can't not laugh at it. It's like the funniest thing to me. Also, I love the line right after that. You eggheads have the survival skills of a Boy Scout troop. (laughs) I got to add that to my vocabulary and consistent base because it's hilarious. Okay, so what is my favorite scene though, besides these just funny things? It's that scene that I mentioned earlier, where Coop comes back to the Endurance and he sees the messages from his family for the first time. And I... I think it's really interesting because this necessarily isn't my favorite scene of the film forever and always. But this time that I watched it, it's my favorite because of what I noticed about the music and how that affected me and how that affected my interaction or my experience with the film and the story for the rest of the film and how powerful it is. And and I'll really remember that. And so this time around, that is my favorite scene. So let's move on to the last segment here, Fall In, which is just... A rich segment for this episode on Interstellar. This is where I talk about the emotion. As I've been mentioning, this film is full of emotion, themes, messages, ideas portrayed about the human condition and about ourselves or whatever it is. As Chris says it best, ultimately, the film is about human beings at what binds us together and what divides us. And I think it's really interesting because this idea came a lot actually from a conversation that Hans had with Chris and Emma. They were out together. They were somewhere in London. They're having tea or something like that. Uh, And they were talking and Hans, whose son was 12 at the time, said to them, once your child is born, you can never look at yourself through your own eyes anymore. You always look at yourself through their eyes. They had a conversation. They went on to have a snowball fight like one in the morning in the streets of London or whatever, wherever they were, I can't remember. But it was powerful to me to see how these great lines about once your parent, you're the ghost to your parent's future. You know, when you become a parent, one thing becomes very clear and that's that you need to protect them. These great lines that work so well in the film came from a genuine conversation between friends, between people who share that love for their children, very powerful. And it's interesting how this, this idea of love or connection is throughout the entire film. For example, brand wanting to follow her heart. Love isn't something we invent. It's observable. It's palpable. It's an artificial of higher dimension we can't yet perceive. Love is the one thing we are capable of perceiving that transcends time and space. Maybe we should trust that. The times before, I always felt like that line was a little weak. Not that it ever degraded the film at all, but it it didn't have the oomph. This time around, it does. How powerful is that? Love is a very powerful force that we don't understand but we should have trust in it as we explore space or whatever it is. That's the next step in human evolution for that. We should never lose that connection. It's a very powerful force. And it's interesting how this is contrasted with something that comes shortly after we see Murph eating dinner with Tom and his family. um, And his Tom's wife offers to let her stay up in the room and she doesn't want to, she says, there's too many memories. And Tom replies, I have something for that. And he comes back with alcohol as if trying to release those memories. So on one end, we have an astronaut risking it all for the survival of humanity, gripping to memories to someone they love, trying to follow that. And the other person at the other end trying to erase it. How those things both divide us and bind us together. And then there's a line of Dr. Mann who says, the emotion to be with other people is at the foundation of what makes us human. It's not to be taken lightly. Ultimately, that survival instinct, that emotion to be with other people is what wins him over and he makes a horrible cho- choice, but that—that that is at the foundation of what makes us human. It, it shouldn't be taken lightly. The love we feel for others, the, the love that Coop had to get back to his daughter, that that's not something that we should just write off in our search for the new planet we're going to live on. How can you not be moved to tears? when murph says i knew you'd come back and he asks why and she says because my dad promised me that's just powerful you know no matter what the circumstances are <laughs> this crazy one in relativity and, and time being different your your daughter's now older of you or just whatever it is that is a powerful line the film grapples with the idea that comes because of the collision of the human scale with the interstellar scale, the desire and need to explore space, but at the real human cost to that and, and how difficult that is and how there is a need to go out there, but how that need is ultimately because of love, ultimately because of the people that we love, like Coop continually reminds him, what's the point of finding this if there's no one left on earth to save? But it's also interesting as we strive to discover, does our empathy have to extend beyond our immediate sphere? They talk about how this, in the film, they're the caretaker t- generation. Now they have to take care of the earth for the next one. You know, for your, the next generation, your children's children, whatever it is. Dr. Mann talks about our empathy not extending beyond our line of sight and the importance of saving the species, not just the people we care about. Yet he's incredibly selfish later. It's just interesting to have that conversation. I'm not here to try and present any answers. I think the answer simply is yes. It's our... The human species, of course, we should save that. But how difficult is that to try and extend that empathy onto people we've, we will never meet? But I also think it's an interesting conversation that we're seeing more and more now as the scale shifts a little bit. As it, we understand more and more the impact of our choices on people outside of our sphere, be that in the future or just beyond us everything that's happening with the climate crisis and how that's being handled and and whether you believe in that or not, I'm not here to discuss, but what is true is that the, the big selling point of it is that we need to take care of the earth for our next generation. And I think that's also, what's hard to get people on board with is because it, it doesn't matter now. I mean, it matters now, but it's, it matters now for the future. Very, very interesting to try and, and have that empathy and that love because the, the connection is ultimately to people that are here right now and kind of the duality of both of that. The one last thing that I want to mention here is something that Mike apps is like the genius when it on a letterbox is the genius when it comes to all things, Christopher Nolan. And I was already going to mention this, something that he said, but then as I was watching the film, my wife, she was kind of in and out of the room. She said, Christopher Nolan loves desperation. And we kind of talked about how in each of his films, the characters are pushed to the point of absolute desperation. The, the great line in the docking scene, it's not possible. No, it's necessary. Talking about Inception, whatever it is, unstoppable forces and immovable objects. That's what Coop is. And that's the odds that he's against. And the power that comes in desperation. I remember talking to my brother, my younger brother about something once about a, a trial a difficulty that we both had in our life and how hard it was really to overcome and it, to change that part of our life. And he said, sometimes you got to get desperate to you're willing to do anything necessary to make it happen. It's a serious level of commitment. And I think it's something that Christopher Nolan is interested in because he sees that and he sees the power of desperation and, what it makes us capable of being, whether that is desperation for ourselves or desperation for the people we love and desperation to have that connection. That is such a powerful force in us. It's something that is really great to be grateful for this Thanksgiving. So this has been a long episode. I'm not going to say anymore. It's a powerful film. If you haven't seen it in a while, go watch it. Thank you so much for listening. Hopefully you had a great Thanksgiving and you were able to enjoy that connection to those you love around you hopefully it was worth it and it was uplifting anyway let me know your thoughts on tenant if you can get your thoughts in on dunker quickly before that episode's made please let me but especially on tenant i'd love to get your your thoughts on tenant follow the basement binge on social media linked in the show notes it's pretty much just at the basement binge everywhere but you can check it out in the show notes leave a review on pod chaser if you'd like but once again this is the basement binge this is noel november my name is harrison that's all for now ciao ciao